Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We've distinguished between adept Buddhism, the Dharma that the Sangha is charged with preserving, and folk Buddhism, what ordinary Buddhists understand as Dharma. Actually, adept and folk are two poles of a continuum from more and more adept understanding to more and more folkish understanding. The Dharma is so sophisticated, demanding much study, and only fully understood through years or lifetimes of practice, so relatively few are fully adept, and the rest of us trail off from there. Compare this to hikers. Each weekend, many people set out to conquer the mountain in the middle of the state park. A large and very mixed group of people of every age, state of health, type of footwear, size of backpack or picnic basket, degree of inebriation or caffeine fortification. The group that appears on any particular day will naturally spread itself out from the trailhead just beyond the parking lot, along the trails that weave and intersect throughout the park and that occasionally produce a weary hiker at the top of the mountain for the rather singular attainment of a final ascent up to its rocky peak. The strongest, healthiest, hiking-booted, light-backpacked, boldest, most persistent, and most enterprising make the best progress. These are recognizable even in the parking lot. They generally drive all-terrain vehicles with bicycle racks, are slim and fit, and carry high-tech water bottles. They're recognizable later as the ones encountered by the rest of us walking in the opposite direction, with bright and open faces inspiring us with their retelling of mountaintop experiences. Some of them, but not all, have made that last climb up the abrupt final cliff. In the middle range, there is inevitably a mutually infatuated teenage couple that makes energetic progress in spurts, but keeps getting sidetracked and disappearing from the path and into the brush for periods of time. There are some chubby, middle-aged people who huff and puff, sip frequently from canteens, and eat sandwiches. And there are some relatively fit but ancient bird watchers with binoculars. These will return home with some sense of hiking attainment, even if an average one. Their main accomplishments come from adding species to their bird life lists. Falling way back are parents and their young kids who cannot walk another step. A couple of people sitting on a rock drinking beer, an elderly gentleman watching fire ants devour his cane that he had to abandon upright 
after it sank into a soft spot in the ground, and an alluringly attired young lady who broke a heel on the first rock past the parking lot. The Noble Eightfold Path is defined with the bicycle racks and cutting-edge water bottles in mind, and the rest of us try our best to keep up, but then straggle to varying degrees. We do what we can, and often the accomplishments of the leaders and tales of panoramic views from lofty heights inspire us to try a bit harder. The field guides, trail maps, and high-tech hiking boots are primarily designed with these young and fit scalers of peaks and surveyors of views in mind. Science is similar, as is any commonly recognized field of knowledge or skill. We have very adept professional scientists, but we are all physicists, at least to some naive level, insofar as we must deal with the world of mass and motion, light and liquids, gravity and gyrations. Try asking some folk physicists things like, what keeps the moon and airplanes up but us down? Is there gravity in space? Why is the back of the refrigerator so warm? How can radio waves carry sounds and pictures? What makes water freeze? And you may receive in turn an astonishingly imaginative array of folk understandings that trail off into total misunderstandings, superstition, and old wives' tales, alongside some rather sound guesses. Music, philosophy, art, and engineering are other areas in which expert or adept knowledge or skill exist side by side with naive or folk understandings and abilities. Buddhism, because of its utmost sophistication, is no different, never has been since the earliest days and never will be. Folk Buddhism is a wilder, freewheeling, and more popular understanding of Buddhism, an understanding or rather range of understandings that manifests in a particular social, cultural, or regional context. It's often the attempt to harmonize the radical message of adept Buddhism with the conventionality of the prevailing folk culture. Folk Buddhism will, by definition, include many elements found also in adept Buddhism, but also a hefty admixture of folk beliefs, highly devotional practices, elements of non-Buddhist religious, ethical, and philosophical traditions, many colorful elements from myth or popular entertainment, and many false understandings of Buddhist teachings to boot. It's important to recognize that Buddhism is not a cookie-cutter enterprise. Most religions tend to be. That is, a typical religion defines a set of practices or standards that all adherents are equally responsible for upholding, producing rather standardized norms of behavior and understanding. These take a common attainment as a benchmark and so will not put as much emphasis on the aspirations and needs of the hotshots and rocket scientists 
as Buddhism does. In fact, Buddhism cannot be a cookie-cutter enterprise because its benchmark is extraordinarily high. The singular attainment of perfect purity in action and thought, penetrating insight and imperturbable serenity of awakening. Those adepts of highest attainment understand and live something extremely sophisticated and rare beyond the reach of the typical among us. The other side of the story is that straggling is quite permissible in Buddhism. Nobody requires that we undertake five precepts, least of all God. It's our choice. No one requires that we drop anything into alms bowls, nor that we attend Dharma talks, nor that we cultivate the mind. We choose to, individually or as families. Buddhism provides choices at every level, hopefully with the support and advice provided through our communities to make these with due deliberation on the basis of Buddhist wisdom. We Buddhists spread ourselves out on the path based on our choices, on our determination, and on our aptitude. But the stragglers can rely on adepts for guidance and encouragement when they like, for the scalers of peaks inspire us all in a wholesome direction. Moreover, the adepts are almost always quite tolerant of folk understandings and have been throughout Buddhist history, insofar as they're minimally consistent with adept understandings. Any particular culture is likely to have a characteristic folk Buddhism as a set of understandings peculiar to that culture that are understood as dharma, or at least freely mix with or extend dharma, but are peculiar to that culture. By the way, I don't exclude modern culture from this. We'll talk about modern folk Buddhism by and by. Let me describe some common Burmese folk conceptions the non-modern culture I'm most familiar with. A frequent Burmese visitor to the monastery in which I live in Texas, a laywoman who likes to come on weekends to prepare food for the monks, was up late one night and spotted a monk standing in the sky above one of the new buildings where a new pagoda was about to begin construction. She called other people hither, also Burmese lay people, who indeed verified the presence of this monk in the sky. But by this time, he was sitting in meditation posture. It was generally agreed among the witnesses that this monk had teletransported from Burma. A couple of weeks later, I heard this story retold by another layperson who was not an original witness to this event. And in the retelling, the monk in question was our own founder, who lives in Burma, undoubtedly checking out the new construction site. I personally never seem to be present for the occurrence of such miracles. The average Burmese Buddhist knows maybe a little about meditation, but does not practice it regularly, knows basic teachings of Buddhism largely from Jataka tales, primarily a children's literature, 
but is mostly informed by a vibrant folk Buddhism. Burma is a land of pagodas, statues of the Buddha, and numerous monks and nuns, before all of which people bow, fully touching their foreheads to the ground in reverence. The average Burmese Buddhist at the same time inhabits a world of tree spirits, miracles, and magic, largely of pre-Buddhist origin, but often blending in her mind seamlessly with Buddhist practices and doctrine. Appeasing tree spirits, knots, is a common duty of monks, and I was called on on one occasion to help appease some mischievous tree spirits myself. Being of naturally good humor, I complied after being assured that tree spirits will never, ever dare to harm a monk. In Burma, blessings are routinely sought from monk. As in other Theravada countries, the chanting of, of any of the paritas, a set of 11 suttas or composites from the suttas, by monks on one's behalf is widely believed to be efficacious in protecting one's welfare. This practice has parallels in many religions and other Buddhist traditions, which sometimes, unlike the Burmese, use talismans or amulets to bestow blessings. A revealing study reports that, in fact, the majority of monks, all of whom provide this priestly service routinely, believe such practices have no special power other than to produce self-confidence in the patient. I've often heard monks pointing this very thing out, but folk beliefs persist, as does the chanting of the paritas by the monks. Notice that folk Buddhism pressures monks to perform many priestly services, contrary to the desire of the Buddha to leave such matters up to the Brahmin priests, perhaps because there are no Brahmin priests in Burma. As foreseen in the monastic code, many lay people have daily contact with monastics when they offer alms in the morning, rice, and little curry. People have a particular regard for those monks who are accomplished meditators, have impeccable discipline, are recognized scholars, or excel in social welfare. Although monks rarely mingle in social gatherings, alms rounds, or visits to the monastery on quarter moon days provide the laity an opportunity to learn some dharma and ask questions. Although all monks are respected as representatives of the sangha, people learn of individual monks' reputations as teachers. Moreover, in this electronic age, many people listen to recordings of Dharma talks and parita chanting at home, featuring their favorite famous sierros, teachers, as routinely as Americans watch talk shows on TV. Part of the Burmese system of veneration of the Buddha and of arahants involves relics, a practice that the Buddha himself endorsed at some level. In Burma, these generally take the form of crystals, which are capable of spontaneously reproducing like bunnies. Left overnight, the next morning they'll have increased in number and mass. 
A museum has been built in a temple in Burma where a local arahant had lived and died. Pictures in the museum reveal that he had very intense eyes, which, it's reported, did not burn during his cremation, but were found among the relics. I'm not aware that the eyes have multiplied with time. Relics and also consecrated statues of the Buddha have special powers. Jaitiyo, the golden rock, is a huge boulder, maybe 40 or 50 feet in diameter, perched on top of a sheer cliff at the very top of a tall mountain in southern Burma, in such a way that it has been just about to roll off for maybe the last several hundred thousand years or so, I don't know. However, the folk story is that some of the Buddha's hairs are contained inside of the rock and that the rock remains in place by the unexplained power of the Buddha. Once upon a time, some non-Buddhists tried to push the rock off the cliff in order to undermine people's trust in the triple gem but they were turned into monkeys. In an inspiring, hopefully not foolhardy, display of faith, there is now a nunnery directly below the rock, exactly at the point of first bounce. Winston King, a scholar of comparative religion who spent two years in Burma many decades ago, describes the shape of the Buddha Sasana in Burma as follows. There is a traditionally orthodox center represented literally by the scriptures, doctrinally by the conservative tradition expounded by the Sangha and the orthodox core of lay followers, and practically by the conventional Buddhist morality for laymen and meditational practice by the spiritually elite in both Sangha and lay ranks, living cheek by jowl with orthodoxy, often frowned upon but never rigidly excluded, and hence a nearly integral part of Buddhism is the religion of folklore and the popular devotional cultus of adorational worship of the Buddha image and prudential reverence to the knots that is, the tree spirits. I like to think the adept's tolerance toward folk Buddhism began with an incident described in the Winaya. One, One day, day the, the Buddha, Buddha sneezed. The, the monks, monks present called out, Bless you! This was a conventional idiom in Buddha's India as it is today. And the Buddha's response should have been, Bless you too! But instead, the Buddha posed a question, something like, Wait a minute, do you think that saying that will influence my future well-being? The monks replied, Well, no, actually. Then you are not to say it. And thereby, a new rule circulated that the monks were expected to follow. However, lay people began to complain about how unmannerly all the monks had suddenly become. I blessed a perfectly good monk who sneezed, and he didn't even bless me back. How rude the impudent cad! 
When this was reported back to the Buddha, he rescinded the rule that he had earlier proclaimed. Monks, householders need blessings. When someone says, bless you, I permit you to answer, bless you too. The danger would seem to be that if folk Buddhism stretches the boundaries of Dharma, and if it introduces too many non-Dharmic notions, won't it over many centuries overcome adept Buddhism or float off by itself as an independent cult? What keeps that from happening? We'll take this issue up next week.